This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 216, a survey of adventure sports, camping, backpacking, both in the U.S. and the U.K., with Bob Cartwright. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today we have special guest Bob Cartwright with us. Bob is the host of the Outdoor Station Podcast, and today we are going to discuss, uh, kind of compare and contrast, what it's like to backpack and camp in the UK and in the US, as well as in other countries in Europe. And we're going to talk a lot about the developing adventure sports industry and philosophies and how times are changing and about opportunities in the adventure sports world today. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Bob, welcome to the program. And for the first question, why don't you just tell us about the Outdoor Station podcast? The Outdoor Station started in 2005, in October 2005. And uh, it was a couple of months after the word podcasting was officially invented and attached to the iTunes software, which came out in July. And initially, the podcast started as a way of supporting some of the items that we were selling through our shop, which is backpackinglight.co.uk. Um, uh, but I found fairly quickly that there were a lot of interesting people, if you like, normal people, non-celebrity people, doing really interesting trips. And they were taking some of this equipment and they were using it as it was intended. But it was the experience that they were sharing that really did engage with me and the audience as it grew fairly rapidly at the time. So over a 10-year period, we've now expanded to, well, well over 400 podcasts that are in the archives. And we've done pretty much the same as yourself, really. Spoken to people doing, if you like, humble trips, simple few-day walks uh, to to much longer, uh, four years in some cases. Uh, some people have cycled around the world. And we've also touched on the different disciplines, uh, be it walking and hiking, which predominantly was our initial aim, to cycling and paddling, where, where we've met people that have done that as well. And it's been... A fascinating and educational journey from my point of view to hear some of the stories that people have told about their experiences and um, how they've they've overcome obstacles or challenges, as well as the, the practical aspects of what equipment they've used to benefit their particular adventures. So the outdoor station is, is something which we encapsulate in this country. When somebody says the outdoors in the UK, they generally mean people that appreciate, understand, and enthuse about anything to do with the outdoors, which really is more about walking, cycling, hiking, sailing, uh, that type of activity. Whereas I know in the US, as soon as you mention outdoors activity, people start to think of the shooting uh, and the, the sort of hunting fraternity, of which there's, there is a very small aspect in this country, but it's not something that we particularly touch on. So like you, you know, we, we like to uh, encourage people to consider... Uh, interesting and uh, exciting and, and challenging moments, uh, whether it's the first night they spend out under the stars uh, without a shelter, uh, right through to those people that do long-term trips and have real stories to tell uh, about uh, different aspects of the way that they've experienced the world. I think it is very interesting how adventuring is similar but different in the UK versus the US. And I think the driver for that has a lot to do with our history. You know, in the UK, there's less public land available. And in the United States, especially in the American West, there are vast amounts of public lands that are held in common by all people. And some people would call it government land because the government manages it. But the charter says that those lands belong to all the citizens of the United States. And so... What that does is it opens up vast tracts of land to be explored and camped on and enjoyed in a variety of ways. Whereas in the UK, I think there's a lot more private ownership of property. And, uh, of course, there's a smaller amount of, of land also. So it, it kind of changes the way that people adventure there versus here. Yeah, you you have a point. Um, I think cl the clarification perhaps you need to to think about is that 
In the UK, we have um, public rights of way. And these public right, rights of way footpaths go back to the Middle Ages, where people would walk from a village to another village. And over the years, some of those paths got turned naturally into, into roads, major thoroughfares. But the actual walking between communi communities was still a core part of uh, people's uh, physical communication between uh, different areas. Now, um, it's true that the, a lot of the UK is privately owned. Um, you could say the majority of it, if not all of it, uh, but some of it, just like the US, has got uh, public parks areas or public areas which are owned by different bodies which are uh, under the umbrella of the government. So once again, we have sort of national parks which we have access to. However, I think the uh, perception of those parks is different but across the water. In our case, we have footpaths where only people on foot are allowed. And these can go meander between villages, go around the backs of houses, cross fields, etc. And they've been there for hundreds of years. Uh, in some cases, those paths have been alleviated to bridleways. Now, a bridleway is where you have uh, access on foot, uh, you have access on horseback, and you can also cycle on bridleways. Now, what's happened over the years with different local politics and parish councils, the little bodies that are responsible for the area around uh, um, communities or churches, some of these bridleways start and finish in the middle of nowhere. They don't, they don't start on, the, on a roadside or on a major um, uh, thoroughfare. However, they are dotted around all over the country, and there's, there's quite a considerable amount of them. And then the, the public access also changes when you get into the national parks. So you have the national parks in, in Wales, uh, which are in, encapsulate a lot of the mountains. You still have national parks in Scotland and obviously uh, the Lake District and uh, Dartmoor and Exmoor. So proportionately, we do have a fair amount of land to which we have access. But the rights that we have on those land probably differs quite considerably to yours. I know I've got friends in, in New Zealand and they have something similar. They, they have a, a hunting license that they can buy to go and hunt uh, deer on a square kilometre or a square mile of a particular uh, piece of national park. Nothing like that exists here. We have a situation where the national park, everybody has access to it. Uh, generally, in reality, that means that people will drive to establish car parks and they might go out for a day walk or, or so on. But very, very few places will allow wild camping. And that's obviously camping without a campsite. However, there are exceptions like this to, to every rule. And in Dartmoor, which is down in the south coast, the little leg part that sticks at the, uh, the bottom uh, right-hand side, left-hand side of, of the UK as you look at it, there's an area there which is um, public land. It's a public park, but it's also sometimes used by the military and in which case you can't have access to certain areas. But um, when they're not doing uh, practicing there, whatever it is they do on there, then you do have ability to camp and wild camp in certain places on Dartmoor. The other place where you have access to do this sort of thing is in Scotland. Pretty well the whole of Scotland, you have a wild camping right. It's a, a law that's been brought in uh, not so long back, actually, probably 10 or 15 years ago now, I guess. And uh, what we have here is the ability to go out into the mountains and wild camp. There are obviously various rules associated with it. You can't be within the curtilage of a house. You can't be seen from the road. You must be on the outside of, uh, you know, farmland and that type of thing. Fairly obvious, really. Uh, and so that type of adventure, certainly Scottish type of adventure, can be uh, quite dramatic. So... The access, the type of adventure, type of outdoor activity in Scotland can be quite adventurous compared to the more tamer parts of, of the rest of the UK. Uh, certainly Wales can be very challenging. Um, that's where the special forces do their training. Uh, so it obviously needs to be uh, appropriate for that. But uh, around the UK, you can it, it's the weather and the mix of conditions that make sort of local challenges and local adventures um, quite dramatic for people if they catch the weather, you know, incorrectly. Interesting. So I think that that's really neat information for our listeners, especially for our listeners in the U.S. and other places that may want to travel to the U.K., because I was curious what types of uh, wild camping were available. And in the U.S., we would probably call it primitive camping, which just means camping without an established campsite, right? 
And so there are places where you can do the wild or the primitive camping in the UK. You just have to know where you're going and what the regulations are for that area. Absolutely correct, yeah. yeah. So in the U.S., we have a variety of public lands. We have what is considered a national forest land. We have wilderness areas, which are generally segments of national forests that uh, don't allow any type of mechanized travel. So they stay truly primitive. The only way you can access those lands is, is walking or on horseback. You can't even use a helicopter to fly in. We also have um, the Bureau of Land Management. So these are government-controlled lands or public lands that don't have a forest on them. So these are more of the deserts and things like that. And, uh, of course, we have the National Park System. And so each of these designations has different regulations. And even, like, the national forests will have different regulations from area to area. But if you call the National Forest Service then they will tell you what is allowed in in various places. And generally, in the National Forest, the rules are similar to what you just said. Don't camp within sight of a road. And um, it's pretty much open camping. You know, there are a few places where from time to time there will be a fire ban because the conditions are so dry. Or sometimes there'll be an area that's been overused. And so they'll say, please don't camp in this area, but you can camp in these other areas. Or sometimes there are regulations that say you can't camp more than, you know, five out of 14 days or something like that. But besides that, it's free and it's open. And so it makes for a lot of opportunities for backpacking in the American West. Have you found... Over recent years that people need more education and more um, direction in how to treat the areas with respect so they don't overuse uh, sort of common um, camping areas? I think that that is going on in the United States. There's been a big push for the last few decades to educate people about that, about how to care for the environment and how to preserve the lands for future generations. Um, I don't know that it's been of necessity as much as it's just been a good idea that's moved forward. A lot of people have certainly jumped on the environmental bandwagon, and that's really important to most Americans. But then we also have the facet of people that um, mostly, I think, out of a lack of knowledge. You know, they're, they're not familiar with the outdoors. They don't know the outdoors. They haven't really connected with it in a way that's meaningful, and they're learning. And so they make mistakes. They do things that damage nature. And so the government has been trying to kind of regulate that class of people just because out of a lack of knowledge, I think, you know, they're causing unnecessary damage. And so they've divided up our public lands kind of into different zones. There's the backcountry, which is uh, probably has fewer regulations because it's less visited. But then they also have what they call front country. And that's where maybe there's a, a city, and near the city it's interfacing with nature, and it gets heavy, heavy use. And so they actually put more regulations on the places where the most people go. And then, of course, they have placards everywhere and all sorts of programs to educate people on how to care for nature. Actually, that sounds very similar reducing the scale of it right down to an area in Scotland which unfortunately has been uh, well at one stage had been quite devastated and abused by people who were going to the Loch Lomond area which is a beautiful beautiful area in the West Highland Way uh, took in part of the route past the loch and it was had become almost a party destination for groups of people who not only didn't treat it with respect, but left a terrible mess, et cetera, et cetera, behind them. Um, and so consequently, they brought in a regulation which actually is to curtail that type of activity, and it significantly improved the, um, uh, the um, location as a result. Mm. It's a common issue. Anytime people are interacting with nature, we can love it to death. We can overlove it. And... Uh... So we have to be educated, I think, like you mentioned. And when people care for nature, then I think there can be a wonderful symbiotic relationship between, you know, the humanity and nature. And I like to point out that we're natural, too. We are a part of nature. And so I don't like the the philosophies that say humans are the problem and nature must be isolated from us. My personal approach is that if you start young especially and get people involved in nature— so that they interact with it and understand all the various interdependencies 
of the different you know ecosystems, and they can appreciate what it means to take care of it. Then they become people that not only care for nature when they're there, but they also work politically to preserve and care for the environment. So my my personal bent is to get people into nature as much as possible in a in a way that is somewhat cautious to take care of nature, but primarily educates them. So tell me, of all the people you've interviewed so far, what's the most interesting conversation you think you've had? Oh boy, that's a challenge. We have 209 episodes as of today, and that's a fair number of interviews to to think through. (laughs) We've had some that were quite humorous. Uh, Several weeks ago, Travis, my co-host, interviewed a fellow that he created a a bicycle out of a sofa, out of a couch, so that he could ride a couch like you would watch television with down the highway and pedal it. And he and his friend pedaled it down the coast of Canada and uh, had some amazing stories to, to tell, as you might imagine, from something like that. So we get those kind of wild experiences where people are doing something incredibly creative. Um and we also have the the super adventures is what I would like to call them. For instance, Lonnie Dupree summiting Mount McKinley Denali on January 15th of this year. Solo, um, an amazing feat in a very extreme conditions and uh, what it's like to, uh, you know, have that kind of an experience. And so, you know, we have the full gambit all between between all of those. So it's hard to pick just one and say that was the most interesting, but some of them have certainly been fascinating. And what do you think you've learned most yourself from speaking to all these different people that have done completely different challenges? There's a common theme with our show that comes out over and over and over again. And it usually comes out the most when people are doing some sort of adventure travel. But I think the common theme is that People will have a fear that keeps them from going adventuring. It's a fear of the unknown or a lack of of knowledge or training. But then when you go out the door and start doing the adventure, the fear dissipates and the rewards are vast. And that often is associated with the people you meet along the way. You know, the relationships that you build as you travel. The media loves to tell us all the bad stuff. But people found, even in areas of the world that are politically unstable and and considered dangerous, that when they go to those places, what they find are real people just like the rest of us who want the same things that we all want. And they find beautiful interactions with people with their generosity and their caring. And so I think that's a common theme that's um, come around many times in our show. It's not that I didn't know about that dynamic, but I love to hear it expressed over and over again. People find it surprising that all the things they were nervous about really are not big issues once they go out and they experience whatever adventure it is that they're interested in. Mm, definitely the fear of the unknown builds builds in your mind. And I certainly, one experience or one comment I would say to add to that is that in my years of traveling around the world and doing various things, I've always found city people to be very similar. But actual fact, the further into the world you get, um, the more generous and honest and open. And as a, as a generalization, I would say, usually found in the poorer countries, the people with the least give the most. Yeah, yeah, I would agree they, with that. I think that in smaller communities, interpersonal relationships are highly valued. And there's a lot of what I call social accountability because everybody knows everybody. You can't get away with much without someone saying, hey, that wasn't right. And so I think it builds a quality of uh, expectations for how to treat people properly. And in the cities with all the anonymity, sometimes I think people can get isolated and forget. Yeah, very good point. Tell me, what is, asking the U.S. question now, because we see this obviously popping up on all our social media, what's the difference between survivalists, preppers, Um, bushcraft and hiking in the U.S.? There's some overlap, obviously, with those four things. Um, A lot of it is a matter of semantics, and survivalists kind of took on a bad rap, and the reason I say that is the media picked up that term, and they turned it into, these are the um, the paramilitary gun-toting people that are setting up bunkers, and if anyone tries to cross their property, they're going to be shot. That is a misnomer. That's not really what a survivalist is. The pure definition of a survivalist is someone that wants to live. They want to survive if there's some sort of an emergency. And so, you know, if you if you kind of just look at survivalist, not from the 
paramilitary viewpoint, but survivalist in the sense of, you know, I want to live the way that my grandparents did or my great grandparents did so that my basic needs are met, even if society can't support me for a season. That's really what a survivalist is. When you talk about a prepper, that's kind of a new term that was created. And really, it was to get away from the the, the bad image that had been assigned to the word survivalist. And prepper is, is the same thing. It's somebody that prepares for emergencies. And so the prepper movement, I think, is is trying to disassociate itself a little bit from survivalism for that reason. And then um, you mentioned two others. Bushcraft and hiking. So bushcraft, I think bushcraft probably is more of a UK or a Canadian term. It's it's growing in popularity in the US. But bushcraft is learning how to work with nature to survive. So instead of surviving failures of society or major weather events, bushcraft is a lot more to do with going into the woods and being able to be self-sufficient. And uh, like I said, there's overlap with all of these, but bushcraft is a is a, a fascinating hobby and a lot of people have taken up bushcraft as part of prepping or survivalist ideas because they see how practical it is. But others do bushcraft simply for the joys of learning about nature and how to work with the plants and the various environments to uh, to be self-sufficient. And then the, the hikers are traditional backcountry hikers uh, into, into the wilderness, taking everything they need with them. Usually that is the case. And we would generally in the USA, backpackers are the ones who are going on multi-day trips and they're carrying everything on their back. A hiker might be a day hiker, someone that just has a snack and a little water and they, they hike for five miles or something, you know. So we make that distinction. But hikers generally would not be associated with the survivalist or the prepper movement, although a lot of hikers may do bushcraft, right? So there's kind of a continuum there. Mm, I see what you mean about the overlap, definitely. Um, with the media coverage that you're getting, well, we're all getting, not just you, but I'm just curious from a U.S. perspective, from your perspective, um, what are you finding on television? What, what's, what's creating the greatest appeal? Because obviously you must have the Ray Mears and uh, Bear Grylls with his series taking various celebrities out. Um, and I presume you must have your own uh, local uh, U.S.-based survival or bushcraft or whatever the term is, uh, adventure um, presenters, what is there? A, is there a certain hierarchy? Is there a certain type of presenter that appeals more to the audiences than than others? <laughs> I actually think that the answer to this question is a little bit embarrassing, and the reason I say that is the media has been putting out programming that's somewhat extreme because it sells better, because mm-hmm. it gives people something to point at and, and kind of chuckle about. And so a lot of the programming that we've seen um, has been extreme on purpose. And, uh, for instance, the Duck Dynasty. You know, that's there are very few Americans who live in that sort of a world. But because it was something that was curious and interesting, it became a very popular program. Of course, we have Bear Grylls that airs here, and that's popular, and Survival Man and, and various ones. I, I think that, especially with reality television, the U.S. media has started trying to do more and more extreme things because they find it entertaining. And often that leads into a misconception or a misrepresentation of, I think, what the average person, you know, would, would think life is really about. And so what does the what's the future hold for you and, and the 180 podcast? Where do you feel you're going to take it? You know, the Adventure Sports Podcast, which, of course, is brought to everyone by 180 TAC, our company, the Adventure Sports Podcast are... Our goals are to continue to interview wonderful people that can open up the eyes of our listeners to adventure and to encourage people to reach out and connect with the outdoors because we think the values for that are vast. We think it's good for nature. It's good for the environment. It's really good for the people who get involved in adventure sports for fitness, for you know all of the reasons I listed earlier. So we want to continue that movement. We also want to continue to build a larger and larger community around the show where people can interact with each other and meet up and and find it the show as a resource for their adventures. Uh, we want to continue to help to get the word out for people who are 
planning large projects and adventures who need the public awareness and support to make it possible. So we want to continue to do that. We also have future plans, Bob, to create a membership site associated with the podcast where people can get a lot more access to a lot more valuable content and things like that if they become members of the show. And so we have a lot of big dreams about how it's going to continue to grow and develop. And as our audience grows and we get more feedback from the audience, we really want to be able to provide what they most want to hear and to experience from a membership perspective. So, Bob, I did want to ask you a little bit more about the wild camping. Sure. And the reason is because in the areas where there is no legal opportunity for wild camping, hikers still have a need to spend the night somehow. And I'm beginning to catch a... a a little bit of a, a vibe here that people have found that they can dive behind a bush in the dark to wild camp. Is that pretty common in the UK? Yes, it's very hard to try and to try and describe this to to an audience that perhaps hasn't been here before. Um, and I, I suppose you've obviously seen the the Downton Abbeys of this world, and perhaps the the latest series Poldark to give you an idea of some of the romantic image images that uh, the UK presents, and a lot of the land associated with those programs, for example, would be classed as private estate lands. Now, wild camping is technically illegal. And when I say technically illegal, in the sense that the the owner of the land can instruct you to leave and use whatever force is necessary for you to do so. Um, it's not illegal from a police point of view unless you react in a way that isn't of well-being to the landowner. So you're in a situation really where, basically, if you find yourself at uh, the corner of a field uh, with a hedge and perhaps uh, no buildings in sight, so nobody really is going to see you, you can actually uh, put a quick shelter up uh, last thing at night and leave first thing in the morning and leave no trace that you were ever there. Now, that's how people need to do it. But unfortunately, there are those that will do it and abuse it in the sense, as I described earlier on, without giving due consideration to the, the land actually belongs to somebody else. And by setting a campfire, shall we say, is not a good way to go when that field is actually being used by cattle or sheep or whatever it may be. And there's obviously the, the natural problems of a fire, shall we say, uh, doing more damage than good uh, regarding the ground or the, the hedges, uh, depending on the time of year. So there's there's a very, very fine, very, very fine dividing line. And there's all sorts of communities who approach this in a slightly different way, certainly around the social scene, if you look on the on the Facebook. But the, the there are people who are passionate about wild camping. I've interviewed many people about wild camping, and I'm sure you've listened to a few. But we all agree, basically, if you choose a place which is as remote as possible and you leave it as exactly how you found it and you do not stay there for more any more time than you have to stay there uh, overnight, then people turn, as we would say in this country, a blind eye. Mm -hmm. However, if you do something in a place which is just down the road from the local pub uh, that's on the way back to uh, a housing community and you, you, you create a bonfire in a, in a field that can be seen for miles around, you're asking for trouble. So I presume it must be similar to the US, but uh, in this country, not many people own guns. So the confrontation that tends to take place tends to be very verbal more than anything else. Interesting. There are parts of the United States that have very limited public lands. And I'm sure there's a similar dynamic where people are trying to resolve, well, how do I spend the night? And in the U.S., if you uh, try to camp in areas where you shouldn't, then the police will generally wake you up and ask you to move on, you know. And if you cross private property in the United States, then you are you're trespassing, and that's a crime. Now, generally, that's not something that um, people enforce, right? But everyone's aware that it's not appropriate to go onto someone else's private property and start doing destructive things. And I think that's when it does get enforced. There are guns in the U.S., but rarely, if ever, does someone use a gun to try to intimidate someone or force them off their property. But it's more of a matter of self-protection if someone tries to break into your home and, and do some violent act. 
that's usually when guns get involved here in the United States. So it's a little different culture, but there's very little concern about actually, you know, being shot or something if you cross someone's property. But that said, um, where we do have the public lands, then it kind of alleviates the whole problem. So Yeah. Uh, one thing I didn't mention was, uh, coming back to something we mentioned earlier on, in a, in a more rural community, in a fairly remote community, and you, if, for example, in, in the backwaters of Wales, you may be surrounded by farmland. Mm. And on many occasions, if you actually knock on the door of the nearest house or the farmer and say, look, I'm stuck for the night, I, I really just need to bed down, would you mind if I just use the corner of your field? Nine times out of ten, they'll say yes, and possibly just invite you in for a meal and you'd sleep in the, uh, sleep in the spare room, to be honest. But, um, you know, as a, as a generalization, to try and explain this to, to people overseas, it's, it's exactly the same as yours. You are, it is a trespass. You are on somebody else's land. They have every right to move you on. Really, what do you want to do if somebody came into your back garden? You know, you would uh, push them out over the hedge, or if they're actually going to say, look, I'll be gone at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning, you won't know I was here. You go, oh, okay, fair enough. Just, just make sure you leave. Try Paleo Meals to Go freeze-dried backpacking meals. The wholesome gluten-free ingredients follow the Paleo diet, providing you with the lasting energy you require on your adventures. Visit www.paleomealstogo.com and enter TACK25 at checkout to save 25% off your order. Bingate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. And to take us back into the show, a little jam by my son, Luke. So, Bob, I've had the, the wonderful opportunity to interview several adventurous people in the UK, and I find a lot of them are very interested in world travel for adventure. And there are plenty of people in the United States who also like to do world travel. But I think that in the UK, it seems like when people say adventure, they often mean I'm going beyond my own shores. Do you find that to be common there? I think if people were to use the term adventure and travel, they would always assume that they're leaving the shores. And a lot of that is, for us, it is so diverse, so close. So you've only got a few miles across the water and you're into France, a completely different language, a completely different lifestyle. And obviously you go further afield and you have Germany and you have Belgium and you have Spain and everything changes quite dramatically. And so, of course, with the advent of uh, cheap flights, um, bucket flights, where you literally can just climb onto a plane with a, a small sack that can actually contain everything you need for a, a micro adventure or a mini adventure, as they call them these days. It doesn't take very much to, to, to go to a different country and experience something. And certainly a lot of the countries uh, like Spain and some of the Balearic Islands, the small islands around, around Spain and uh, around northern Morocco, 
there's a lot of exciting places and a lot of good walks that you can do virtually within 10 or 15 minutes of, of getting from the airport. So, uh, and, and yeah, different languages, different lifestyle, different food, you know, a massive different experience. And for people that haven't perhaps traveled and, and, and experienced such diversity, um, it can be a major, a major challenge to their, their personal, personal world. Mm. Yeah, I see that. You know, but those challenges, I believe, are part of what enlarge our experiences, make those memories, and make life, you know, the way I see it, make life richer and more full. So I, I think it's valuable for people to put themselves outside of their comfort zone, even if just a little bit. There's a lovely saying at the moment that I'm using on a quite a regular basis, which is frightening me, really, which is, what do you get when you don't get what you want? Experience. Mm. Right. And and experience is what enriches our personal development. So if you don't get to the destination you thought of in the right time that you're going to catch the next lift or the next bus or whatever, you have to deal with it. And that's the thing. That's the difference between sitting behind a, a laptop or a, a smartphone looking at other people's experiences when you're actually there yourself and you have to deal with it. And then the more basic your situation might be the more of a the more of a challenge the more um attention that you have to apply to that moment for example you know i've just been talking to somebody uh, not so long back about uh, adventure travel exactly the same thing but adventure travel these days everybody is carrying well thousands hundreds of pounds worth hundreds of dollars worth of technology with them now when i look back to when i first started traveling in the 1980s uh, you know, when I was in a situation where I wasn't feeling very well, I was a bit concerned, social media to me was to send a postcard home. And by mm. the time I got a return letter, I was feeling fine. I had to deal with it. And a lot of those experiences where you were there at that particular moment um, are the things that empower you and give you ammunition for your future life. And I personally think travel in, in, in every form, not just huge wide world travel but actually just local travel going outside your comfort zone going beyond your normal boundaries boundaries going beyond your normal area your normal circle of friends you're always learning you're always developing and i think that's a human nature really we always desperate to to empower ourselves and learn more and be more able to deal with other surprises that come along the way and uh, turn you into a more rounded human being and to be honest when you look at the world at the moment and the amount of wars that are going on and we, re we reflect on some of the things we were just saying earlier on about communities and when you actually get into communities, you realize they're all the same. We're all the same people. Why on earth are, are so many people now trying to cause such damage and such pain on other, other people? Uh, I, I, I do not understand what's, what's gone wrong really with humanity as, as we see it. And you look at Syria as an example, and the poor people there and what they're suffering. And yet I know people, my wife, in fact, when she traveled, she traveled through Syria 30 years ago, and they were the most welcoming, most warm, most inviting people, and most humble people you could wish to meet. Uh, so, so travel, I think, is a good educator. It's a good way of, of, of empowering yourself for your future life. But it's also a good way of thinking and being able to understand what somebody else's life might be, even though you've never met them, because you've had that experience behind you. And you can empathize with with their lifestyle, how they're living, what they're surviving on, where's the water, where's the food coming from, where's their energy coming from, and understand how what they must be going through. And, and, you know, not get into the situation where everybody starts a war with each other. You know, I've heard it said that 90% of the people in the world are generally good people who are all seeking the welfare of, of others, right? Then you have maybe another 8% that are a little nefarious. They, they want to get ahead of everybody else, and they don't mind causing others a little bit of discomfort, you know, to, to achieve their personal goals. But then you have 1% or 2% that cause the major problems for everybody else and you know that's that's the part that's so frustrating is you, you speak of the violence and the harm that's that's taking place across the world between you know various factions of humanity and if you we look at it it's really just the fringe it's the one percent the two percent of the people that have some agenda some nefarious agenda you know that are causing all of this grief for everybody else the vast majority of people want the same things they want to live, they want to love, 
They want to have food. They want to have family. They want to have friends. They want to experience life richly. And uh, yeah, it's a major problem, isn't it? What do we do about that, that tiny little percentage that wants to just overthrow everything for the rest of us? You know, there's one person or a number of people I would love to interview. I really would love to interview, take them out into the wilds and spend time with them. And those are the political commentators, the, the people at the top of the, their game in the news world that have met and dealt with all these political parties, all these political heads of state and, and the royalty or whatever. And I would love to get their honest perspective of what these people were like as people. I really would love to know, because there's so many layers between them and me, I will never understand and never never uh, meet them. And even if I do, there's going to be a veneer of, of presentation that they protect themselves with and hide behind. But I think these the people who see them on a daily basis, the political commentators, as I say, they, I think, must have a fantastic insight into the reasons why certain people are the way they are. Right. Yeah, that would be fascinating. I've noted with my travels, Bob, that you can see the the effect of a governing body in any country you go to because they have different rules and regulations and expectations, right? But it's like you say, the, the people at the top, it, it's fascinating. It would be fascinating to visit with some of them and, and learn their perspectives and contrast that with, you know, the majority of the people that live in the country. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's uh, it's. Mm. I think it would be a very, very interesting exercise. Sure. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the outdoor station, if we might. What are your future plans for your podcast? Wow. Right. Well, um, technology has changed and moved on so much in since we started, what, 2005 now, 2017 we are. Uh, when we started, laptops were probably the the most uh, popular item for people to interact with technology. Uh, that, obviously, as we know, has changed every period of time. Facebook's come around, Instagram's been invented, Twitter and all the other associated sort of social media activities. And then from a technical point of view, everything's got smaller. They became iPads and then the different types of devices. And now we're down to smartphones that are more powerful than, than sent the first Apollo mission to the moon. It's ridiculous, really, when you think about it. So we have a situation where people now, uh, I think, are referring to their phone. Or we see it all the time, don't we? In any country you go to, people have got their heads down they're looking at the phone they're either watching something interacting with somebody or having a chat about something or researching an item so my thoughts for the outdoor station really to take it forward is to continue doing the audio podcasts we also do video uh, reviews and video podcasts as well or vlogs or whatever they're called uh, that some of which cover trips uh, that we've done uh, a couple of hundred miles walking across scotland a few times that's quite interesting being very popular as well as look at sort of gear reviews but I want to take that a stage further. And now that uh, everybody is presumably, along with the technology they've invested in with their phones, they're also now getting more up-to-date TVs. And the TVs are capable now of switching straight onto podcasts or onto YouTube or onto the video logs or wherever it may be, is actually to develop more videos and more interactive and perhaps more interview-based video programs as well because it's now in our hands your hands and mine uh, the technology is affordable uh, we have the knowledge we have the passion we have the interest in a particular subject there's obviously an audience out there who would like to know more about that particular subject they've all got their own particular agendas or their angles that they're they're coming from and i would like to help them uh, and educate and, and help people who want to explore the outdoors and in whatever form that may take and give them confidence that they can actually do it. So I'm hoping to generate more podcasts and more audio podcasts and certainly increase the, the video side. And as technology develops, hopefully be able to send a message around the world which people can access very, very easily. Isn't it wonderful in our modern day? You know, we, we can have a radio show without a radio station. We can have a newspaper without a press. We can have a, a produce movies, you know, without a production studio. And that provides amazing breadth of content that can be provided by people without a lot of the, the barriers to entry that used to exist. It's easy now to be a published author without a publisher. And, you know, I think that that's wonderful in the in the sense that it's doing what the Internet has done for us. So much information, so easily available. People can learn 
and do things, you know, much more conveniently than ever before. And at a lesser expense, I think that's a beautiful thing. But Bob, here's a question for you. If, uh, if everybody is a published author without a publisher, then how do you find the published authors that are excellent? Well, I can't answer that one. I was, I was going to ask you exactly the same question. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is uh, this is something I've noticed definitely in the last ten years, in particularly in the, in the podcasting world. If we could just talk about that as one area, um, there's the there initially there was the early adopters. There was a title for them, the early adopters, and they're the people that jump onto the technology straight away and usually talk about the technology for the sake of talking about the technology. So they're forever t- producing podcasts, as it were, about the subject of podcasting. But now it's developed, and now it's evolved in its uh, 15, 20 years, and it's become, uh, it's gone through a phase of the early adopters have faded away, all those early people are no longer doing it. And people that do have a passion about a particular subject, and a knowledge, and uh, a, a desire to, to share that knowledge as you rightly say, they are now able to do it. They just need to learn the technology and how to present it well. But it is it is a huge dilemma. How do you find the good stuff, basically? That's the bottom line. It's like walking into a bookstore that's wall-to-wall books as far as the eye can see and saying, give me a good book. And that's where the time is spent, I think, these days with dipping into certain little groups of uh, interests, so you might find something that uh, might uh, be of your interest, say it's wildflowers, for example. And then thanks to things like iTunes or little social network uh, networks that are linked to that particular uh, podcast, for example, you'll find out about three or four other ones. And then you'll start to work outwards from there. And I think that seems to be the only way people find the good stuff. There is an old saying that people buy from people. And I think that's still very much the case. So if somebody were to recommend to you, hey, check this one out. I think this is just for you. It's right up your street. It's all about this particular adventure. Somebody did this and they did that and they did so and so. You, without fail, would would have a listen to it. But when you're presented with a list of 50, 100, 1,000 different titles, some of which can sound very, very obscure, you know, beer in the outdoors, um, the day I fell over, all these sort of uh, different titles that people produce, it doesn't quite grab you. So I think, I think my suggestion and certainly my own experience is the only thing I can refer to in, in this sort of situation is little networks. And certainly the people that regularly correspond with me uh, about my podcast or something that we've said in the past usually will suggest uh, other people of interest. And it is, it's working really, really well from that point of view. You know, I think word of mouth is is wonderful because people only recommend what they personally enjoy. And, you know, on our show, I, I often ask people, you know, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, then share it with your friends because we want to be able to make our show something that benefits our audience. If more people can benefit from it, you know, all the better. So, But here's something that's really cool, Bob. I've interviewed a lot of people that have been using the modern technology to create a lifestyle that they may have had difficulties with you know, beforehand. And an example of that would be someone who, for instance, starts posting videos on YouTube so they can share something with their friends and they build such a following that they begin to monetize that. And uh, I interviewed a a fellow the other day that quite unintentionally now is paying his mortgage, you know, from his YouTube channel. And so those sorts of things happen. And then we interview other people that have used technology to create an income so that they can have an adventure-focused lifestyle. It wasn't that long ago that you had to be sponsored by some major corporation that had a product to promote through an athlete before you had an opportunity to go out and do the adventures full-time. But now people are able to share their adventures, and uh, I think it's wonderful. It's it's affording people an opportunity to do things that you know they may not have been able to, to do earlier. I think that it all comes with uh, the size of the audience. It comes with people learning about what you have to offer. And I've been listening to several of your shows on the uh, the outdoor station, and I enjoy them a lot. There's a lot of great information there. And in addition to that, I like it because while our show's content, you know, they, they overlap. We're, we're talking about getting out there and backpacking and hiking and gear and adventure and that sort of thing. The voice of the shows is very different. And different people will be drawn to one or the other or both, depending on the mood that they're in. 
as our listeners get a chance to sample your show, I think it's beautiful because it just increases the opportunities for people to learn more about the adventures that they love. I think that that really is what it's about. It's about getting the word out so enough people are hearing. And when you have a large enough audience that are hearing and you're benefiting enough people, the the rest will follow. So in the people that you interview on your show, have you come across several people that are are working to make a living out of being a full-time adventurer? It seems to be a new phase, if I'm being honest. The 400-odd interviews that I've done, there's been a lot of passion, a lot of experience, and a lot of stories. But there seems to be a new generation of uh, professional adventurers that are coming through the network, shall we say now, that it seems to be actually an established lifestyle and something where somebody can actually make um, a, a, a day-to-day living from. You know, think historically for a moment. Um, we had Lewis and Clark in the United States that explored the the unknown portions of the North American continent at the time. They were sponsored by the U.S. government to do this. There's Columbus who wanted to attempt to cross the Atlantic. He wanted to attempt to sail around the world. He had to be sponsored by Portugal to do this. You know, it, it took really deep pockets to do these sorts of expeditions in the past. But now I interview people who for a few thousand dollars are rowing across the Atlantic or people that are hiking, you know, across vast areas of the of the far northern tundra. And it's because we have the technology now, we can do things for so much less. And it really has opened up the planet, I think, to all sorts of people. And it's a beautiful thing. Uh, the world is our oyster today. Well, that's true. I was thinking as you were saying that, uh, I remember Sir Edmund Hillary um, climbing Everest. And yet now I was listening to a podcast the other day where somebody was saying they climbed Everest and they had to, there was a queue of 150 people they had to pass on that particular day. And it costs £60,000 to climb Everest with mm. all the passes and whatever. So what's that? Roughly $100,000, $90,000, depending on the exchange rate. Right. So... Yes, things have changed, but then does that take, I mean, obviously it doesn't take the danger away and the excitement, but, but to get to somewhere like the, get to Everest, for example, and expect to see no one there or very, very few people there to suddenly find that you're in a bus queue, um, it, it has changed things and it has made things more affordable for people to do, uh, other adventures or mini adventures. And people seem to have to come up with bizarre ideas for a particular adventure, um, but it's still interesting. But I wonder, is, is this world of adventures, are, we, are, are people, I wonder, chasing um, unusual, ridiculous challenges purely so they can call it an adventure rather than actually enjoying the trip? Sure. And it, it's difficult in our modern age to go somewhere for the first time, to be the first person on a mountain or to a particular part of the wilderness, Right. Mm, These places of they've been explored. We know what's there for the most part, but you can always do it in a new way. And I think that's what a lot of people have started doing. Um, Attempts to bike across Antarctica, for instance. You know, that would 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 have been unheard of not too many years ago. Um, You can't be the first person to get to the South Pole, but you can be the first person to do it on a bicycle in a certain way. What I also find, though, is some of these people that are doing these these uh trips, challenges, adventures, whatever you want to call them, is that the spectacular part of it has now dissipated. Uh, you know, when somebody did achieve Everest, then it was all in all the national newspapers all over the world. Whereas now um, I've spoken to people that have done various challenges that have been fascinating and I could would have thought they would have been extremely popular to to a readership of a magazine or to a readership of a, of a major newspaper and they haven't had the single piece of coverage. So it's interesting that that there are people now that are becoming professional adventurers that are doing smaller um, individual challenges, shall we say, how are they managing to make a living out of doing that when you say, compare that to, as you said, you know, uh, the sponsorship element that used to take place when people did the, the first climb or the first crossing or the first adventure of, of a particular area? I, I hear what you're saying. I think that adventure is less about fame and fortune than it once was. I mean, what were the drivers for the early explorers to try to circumnavigate the planet? You know, it was, it was economic and financial. And, and and now, adventure is more about the experience that we have. 
That's about enriching our own lives. And when the people that are becoming professional adventurers go out and share their stories, then other people are encouraged to say, you know what, I could do something. That would be fun. It's not a matter of I'm going to bring shiploads of gold home from the Aztecs, right? Now it's a matter of I could go and see where the Aztecs lived. I would enjoy that, and I don't want to just fly there and take a tour bus. You know, I'm going to walk. Or I'm going to ride my bicycle because then I can do it in a way that will really connect me with the environment and with the people. So I think that's what's driving modern adventure, really. It's more about the personal experience than it is about fame and fortune. I think I think you're absolutely right, actually. Listening to some of the interviews that you've done with some of the, the UK adventurers – uh, and as I say, this new generation that seems to be coming through, they do get they do get a certain amount of coverage. They do get a certain amount of following because they generate it themselves with their Instagram and their Facebook and their their sponsorship forms or whatever. And and they generate this this uh, this following that follows them every step of the way from from A to Z. Um, but in actual fact, the majority of their sharing and the majority of the interest in them comes after the event. When they do go to these exhibitions and these uh, presentations where they do tell people and inspire people and hopefully open the doors of not just travel but just life experiences to people that perhaps have have closeted themselves away and have a very narrow view on, on life. Yeah, I agree. And it often comes up in the interviews that we conduct that there's a, a general concern about people spending too much time in front of screens, living vicariously. And I say it this way, watching other people pretend to have fun isn't real fun. But that's the trap that so many people are being sucked into. And the people that we interview that are going out and doing things, connecting with nature and having fun adventures, um, they're just adamant about how important it is for people to avoid getting sucked into that trap. Not that all screens are bad, but rather you have to put the screen down and go live real life. And I think perhaps the modern adventuring um, world is is a bit of a reaction to the, the false world of the screens. Yes. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think there's a, there's a, a term in the UK at the moment, FOMO. Have you heard of it? No, FOMO. FOMO. Um, basically, it's fear of missing out. Ah, okay. So people people spend their time on Facebook or on their smartphones looking at other people's adventures or other people's exciting times, and they're they're the reason they're hooked on their phone all the time is because they're scared of missing out on on what this other person is doing. But also, it makes them feel that they're not doing something, so they then go and say, "I'm doing whatever." But actual fact, just exaggerate it to then make the next person think that they're missing out on doing something. <laughs> so you have this whole scenario of people with their phones in front of them taking selfies of the here I am in front of the Himalayas or here I am in front of whatever uh, to just to make the next person feel jealous that they're missing out on it. <laughs> I'm not sure that that's a positive trend. No, no, it's, it's a bit cyclical, really, but it's... Uh, you can see it. You can see how it happens. And I will admit, I'll put my hands up. I've, you know, I started an outdoors company 10, 11 years ago, and now I spend all my time sitting in front of screens. And it does not seem like a good place to be. But part of me has to, you know? Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. All the paradoxes in our modern world. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it is nice to get out and, and uh, get a breath of fresh air and just walk the hills. Uh, and remind myself, and, and I think that's it. It always, it's a better connection. It's a better connection to the soul, and a better connection to the spirit to get out and recharge your batteries and uh, get that perspective. And I think everybody's experienced it who has spent a night lying on on the ground staring at the stars. You know, you're a very very small speck in in front of a very very big place. Well, Bob, thank you very much for being on the Adventure Sports Podcast and for introducing us to your podcast, The Outdoor Station. And if you would like to find Bob's podcast, his website is theoutdoorstation.co.uk. Bob, thanks for sharing your perspective on connecting with nature, how it recenters us and gives us the perspective that we need in this crazy busy world. We really appreciate it. And for all of our listeners out there, until the next show, do get out there and have some fun. 